Many moons ago, when the world was young and heroes walked the earth, there was born the History Podcast. And in this world, there was the Beeb. There was Lars Brownworth and a bloke called Mike Duncan, and we heard Mike and knew he was good. And so was spawned a new generation, wherein I was inspired by Robin Pearson, who picked up the mantle of the Roman Empire in Byzantium. Robin, I'm glad to say, is still going strong, is still producing magnificent history and entertainment, and here is a message from him. Hello everyone, this is Robin Pearson from the History of Byzantium podcast. It seems like you enjoy your history recounted to you by an erudite, funny Englishman. Well, I am also an Englishman. And if you like a bit of Roman history, then come join me for a thousand-year epic of incredible highs and devastating lows. Check out The History of Byzantium wherever you get your podcasts, or go to thehistoryofbyzantium.com. For now, back to David. You should celebrate yourself every day, but some days you should celebrate with jewellery. Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection, Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. Hello and welcome to the History of England, episode 44, Introducing Richard I. So we've finally arrived at Richard the Lionheart. Richard has always been something of a hero of mine, and since I never covered him in serious historical study, my entire image of him comes from the Ladybird children's histories. And you know, I have a feeling that a 12-year-old's view of Richard may actually be a bit closer to the medieval view than to the modern analytical scientific historians. Because to medieval Christendom and to medieval Islam, Richard was a hero, a colossus. He's still one of the big figures of popular history, but as you trawl round discussion sites, it's covered with a whole load of qualification, mainly focusing on the fact that Richard was most definitely a French speaker and only spent six months in England. Anyway, I'm very excited. But now that I've prefaced this podcast with Richard, I'm going to completely change direction. Because I did have a bunch of stuff I wanted to cover in the 12th century social area, and I didn't get round to it. I've been looking for an excuse to cover it ever since, and not found one. So I've decided to stop trying to be clever, and just do it. There were three things I didn't manage to cover, and one of them was on medieval manners. So in today's episode, we're going to spend a few minutes on medieval manners, and then we're going to spend the rest of the episode about the rather fascinating historiography of Richard and cover the background of his life up to the death of his father without hesitation or repetition. So, our Angevin period sees the start of a grand English tradition, the Courtesy Book. Good practical advice on how to behave in company. Daniel of Beckles wrote his poem on civilised man at the start of the 13th century, and this is considered to be the very first of these type. I really don't know how much light it throws on how people really behaved, but there were a few things that really made my son and I in particular laugh a lot. One of the generally interesting things about the book, apart from the shards of light it throws on medieval life, is that the basic philosophy could be from any age. That is to say, it's a rather anxious book, 
A book about how not to make yourself look like an idiot. How to navigate your way through polite society. It is aimed at the gentleman, if such a phrase isn't anachronistic, the reasonably well-off landed person of middle rank. The range of advice is really quite stunning. There are some statements that seem really absurdly obvious, but then get you thinking about the times they're written in. For example, there's a line, If you are a judge, be just. Well, yes, that seems obvious, but of course let's remember that at this time being a judge for many people was a nice little earner, with plenty of opportunity for a bit of grease. The most important legal mind of the century, for example, Ranulph Glanville, was to be fired by Richard for his corruption. So maybe not such a commonplace piece of advice as you might think. The book reflects the very hierarchical nature of medieval society, where the lesser must always give way to the greater. So the more noble people in church get Eucharist first, they get out of church first, they get precedence at table. You need to know your place. At table you show your face to the great man and the back of your head to the lesser. The lesser man should avoid crossing his legs, for example, and it just so happens that pictures only show figures like kings and judges with their legs crossed. And then you need to find yourself the patronage of a great man, because medieval life is dangerous, and this means you need a powerful friend, and therefore you must be generous with the gifts towards the greater. The path to civilization, according to Daniel, was based on restraint and moderation. It is, he wrote, the sign of a level-headed man to laugh moderately, the mark of a brainless man to guffaw loudly. A whole load of the advice sounds just like the stuff my grandmother used to give me. Don't put too much food in your mouth, don't clean the bowl out with your finger, and so on. So gross stuff appears to be gross in any age. Now what made Henry and I really laugh was the grosser stuff. So at supper, it was apparently a bad idea to spit over the table. You should turn your head and spit behind you. Daniel advises you to find a quiet place to break wind. And picking off your fleas in front of the great man was considered definitely poor form. In front of the grandees, he says, do not openly evacuate your nose, twisting your fingers. Don't attack your enemy while he's having a dump. This last, I think, is a spectacularly poor piece of advice, since that sounds just the perfect time to attack my enemy to me. We howled at the advice that as a guest you shouldn't urinate in the hall, though it would be perfectly acceptable for the Lord to do so. I must remember that next time I have friends round. The whole thing is written for men, because women, from the male perspective, take up a lot of space. And they are a problem, as far as Daniel is concerned, and in common with many writers of the time, women are voraciously promiscuous and only interested in sex with anybody who's not their husband. Henry and I didn't read this one, as Henry's not an age yet where girls are anything other than a novelty, but Daniel's view is that a woman, and I quote, is ready to fornicate whenever she has the time and place with a cook or a half-wit, a peasant or ploughman, or a chaplain with his fancy words. What she longs for is a thick, leaping, or robust piece of equipment. I could go on, but really, modesty forbids that I assault your gentle ears with more. So all of this leads up to the biggest issue, of course, where deference to your betters and the problems of dealing with women all come together. What do you do if your boss's wife chats you up? Daniel's slightly unheroic advice follows. If the wife of your lord turns her eyes on you too often and wantonly looses shameful fires against you, letting you know that she wants to have intercourse with you. If she says, the whole household and your lord, my husband, shall serve you forever, 
You alone shall be my darling. You shall rule everything. Everything which belongs to your Lord shall be open to you. Consult me, my son. What I counsel is planted in your heart. Between two evils, choose the lesser evil. Your safer plan is to feign illness, nerve-wracking diseases, to go away sensibly and prudently. And so, the super summary of the whole thing is to tug your forelock to your betters, don't let bodily emissions get the better of you, and be really careful with women. I have no comment to make on the quality of this advice. I'm merely a conveyor of information. And so, on to Richard, Cœur de Lyon. One of the very interesting things about Richard is not just what he did, but the way history has viewed what he did. I have spent a lot of time over the last few weeks, and indeed months, in the company of the works of W.L. Warren and John Gillingham, and these two historians are a good demonstration of the tug-of-war between the bad king, good king debate. In the blue corner, there are those who think that Richard is a rather dislikable warrior bloke, with no interest in government and administration, and who was a bad king, as far as England was concerned, with the often repeated fact that Richard spent only six months in England during his whole ten-year reign. And then John Gillingham, whose brilliant book on Richard rather rewrote our modern attitude towards him. As far as Gillingham is concerned, Richard is up there as one of the ultimate medieval rulers. A competent administrator, a consummate warrior and a skilled diplomat. If you're serious about Richard, by the way, his book, Richard I, is the one to get. John Gillingham. He has an easy style and the scholarship doesn't get too much in the way of the story. It has to be said that I've rarely read, though, a history book that is so concerned to rehabilitate the reputation of his subject, and which is keen to put Richard in the best possible light in all circumstances. But one of the things I really enjoyed about Gillian's book is the way he starts by looking at our attitudes over the ages towards Richard. To contemporaries, there was also something of a split between the French chroniclers who supported Philip and Richard's side, but criticism of his lack of English government was not on the list of problems. In fact, Roger of Hoveden, who does raise a note of criticism, does so for too much government rather than for too little. But the thing that defined Richard at the time was the Crusade. There were French contemporaries who were very keen to belittle his contribution, to explain away their master Philip's early departure, and to accuse Richard of sneakiness, and to emphasise that Jerusalem wasn't recaptured but hate it or loathe it, no one could deny that Richard was a great figure on the stage of Christendom. Almost all the chroniclers admired his prowess and his conquests. The phrase Cœur de Lyon was a contemporary name for a man called Ambroise, not a retrospective thing like adding the great to Alfred. In Italy, Germany, Spain, France and England, Richard was a figure of legend, a heroic champion of a holy war. Even to Muslim chroniclers, he was a fascinating and worthy opponent. So afterwards, Richard became the gold standard against which kings should be compared, a model of kingship. Here's Geoffrey Vansorf talking to England. Queen of queens, while Richard lives, your king is the star under whose radiance you shine. A line in a poem composed early in the reign of Edward I, for example, said, Behold, he shines like a new Richard. So, a lot of shining going on, but the point is that to contemporaries the guy was a god. I particularly liked Gilliam's point about a 14th century manuscript that listed some key dates. First there was the death of King Arthur, and then the death of Charlemagne, then the death of the hero Roland, and then the death of Richard. So Richard is in the company of the great. 
Of course, it's right that modern historians should be less starry-eyed and more critical, but always bear that in mind. So, historians then, over the centuries, managed to decide that Richard was in fact a very bad king. So here are the views of three of the great historians. First, David Hume, the 18th century Scottish philosopher and historian. Richard's impetuous and vehement spirit was better calculated to dazzle men by the splendour of his enterprises than to either promote their happiness or his own grandeur by a sound and regulated policy. And now Gibbon, of decline and fall fame. If heroism be confined to brutal and ferocious valour, Richard will stand high among the heroes of the age. And then the Victorian historian, William Stubbs. All allowances being made for him, he was a bad ruler. I could go on, so I will. When we get to the 20th century, the criticism builds to a crescendo. Stephen Runciman, father of the historians of the Crusades. A bad son, a bad husband and a bad king. Even Winston Churchill for crying out loud. The worst of all the Richards we had ever had. An ill son, an ill father, an ill brother and a worse king. And Bayek, we are comparing him there with Richard II and Richard III, who at very least make a bit of a pig's bottom of their reigns. People have loved to try and rehabilitate his brother John and dish Richard. A book just published on the history of England says that, look, there's nothing to choose between John and Richard. I take the point. They're both arrogant, violent men, but duh, something of a difference in outcomes, wouldn't you say? But the cruelest cut of all came from the history books that got me through my degree. First, 1066 and all that. Whenever he returned to England, he always set out again immediately for the Mediterranean and was therefore known as Richard Gardulion and the Ladybird History of England published in my hometown. Richard was not a good king. He cared only for his soldiers. The last one was particularly ironic, because it might have thought it was teaching children good history, but all the pictures of Richard with his white surcoat, big red cross and armour and pointy sword, just had me going out there into the playground, mowing down my mates as Richard the Lionheart. The he-was-a-bad-king thing went straight over my head. Now, I'm not going to argue with the bad son thing, but part of the issue is that there is basically a little England thing going on here, i.e. Richard was supposed to be an English king, but he just spent all his time in France. Well, the point is that we've not had a purely English king since Harold got an arrow in his eye. England is just one part in a continental empire. The trouble was in France, so where would a good king be? Then there's the view that Richard cared nothing for administration, just for war, which is something to look at a bit more. But for all of this, I think, we should be guided by the fact that in history, context is everything. And Richard, at the very least, needs to be judged in this context. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. So I have to admit to going on an awful lot. But this massive swing in the attitudes to Richard, I find all rather fascinating. And you'll get the chance to judge. I'll try to be balanced, but 
I fear you'll spot my own bias fairly early on, if you haven't already. So, we've already seen something of Richard, and it's not, by and large, been very positive. We've seen that he had a very close relationship with his mother, who idolises him and calls him the Great One. We've seen that he was genuinely the son from hell. And okay, so I know it's always supposed to be the parents' fault for bringing up your children, but please, getting into bed, literally in this case, with your worst enemy and publicly humiliating you, that's not going to be good. But with your permission, or in fact, unfortunately, without it, since it's already written, let us step back a bit into Richard years before he became king. He was born in 1157 in Beaumont Palace in Oxford, as was his younger brother John. There's a plaque in Beaumont Street for any of you who visit Oxford. We are still in a period, incidentally, where images we have of people are not actual representations of how they looked, but idealised. Just to demonstrate my sadness, by the way, I remember an edition of the University Challenge recently where the students were shown the picture of a king and asked to identify him. Well, it was an early medieval king, so really nowhere at all of knowing who it was. I burned with fury for the needless humiliation of the poor students. We have to wait for Richard II to start to get true likenesses. Anyway, this means that the tomb at Fontevraud is not a true likeness. We have the odd description, though it's worth taking with just a pinch of salt, since he'd been lionised by then, but hey, let's go for it. We know he was above average height, and he could have been as tall as six foot four. He had red-gold hair, grey, furious eyes, long legs and an athletic build, though becoming stouter in his later years. There's more than a hint of Henry VIII about him. He was a lover and writer of poetry and songs. He spoke French, langue d'oc and langue d'oui. Are you all aware of this point, by the way? The south of France had a very different language and tradition to Paris and the north. The south is now often called Languedoc because they differentiated the language by the way they pronounced the word for yes. We in the north, oc in the south. Anyway, Richard was essentially a child of the south, and in 1172, Eleanor persuaded Henry to promise Richard her inheritance of Aquitaine. After the revolt of 1173-4, Henry gave him the specific job of bringing Aquitaine back to heel, or as far back to heel as it ever had been. And Richard does a pretty good job of it. The Aquitanian barons had always been a proud and unruly lot, and a couple of them are worth mentioning, because they'll come up again. In 1176, for example, Richard is forced to reduce the city of Limoges, since its lord, Amar, had revolted against Henry. Now, as it happens, Amar had been a loyal follower, but had been disappointed when Henry had kept most of the lands of his bastard son, Reginald, for John, rather than giving the land out to the heirs, such as Amar's daughter, Sarah. Richard was in the end to pay for his life with his inability to genuinely bring Amar back into his camp. Another worth a mensch are the Counts of Angoulême. Again, in 1176, Richard brought Count William of Angoulême to heel when he captured Angoulême itself. The Counts had a long-standing rivalry with the Lusignans, a family with a stunning history, part of which would be in the Holy Land, and who we've met before. In 1178, Henry managed to acquire an area called La Marche, which seriously disturbed the Lusignans. The story goes that Henry met the old Count of La Marche in a monastery. Audubon was feeling sorry for himself. He'd found his wife having an affair, so he'd repudiated her and he'd killed the lover. But his only son had then died, so everybody decided that God had judged against him. So he decided to sell up and set off for the Holy Land. So Henry got the region for a song. 
Either way, when Richard met the family Lusignan in Outremer, he saw them as his own people. During this time, then, Richard is in his twenties, and he earns a reputation for bravery and an ability to capture castles. His crowning glory was the capture of a place called Tyborg. doesn't look too threatening at the moment, it has to be said, but at the time, it was meant to be truly impregnable. In 1179, Richard took the castle, luring the defenders into a sally, and then following up so hard and with such fury that they were able to get in through the gates. This victory was so impressive that other lords decided that brave Sir Robin was their model knight and they opened their gates and capitulated without a fight. After further revolts in 1182 had been suppressed, Richard had taken the power and authority of the Dukes of Aquitaine to new levels. He used this power in warfare and squabbling. There's no doubt that in the fine tradition of his family and ancestors, he understood the role of his class to be fighting. To his east lay the county of Toulouse, a fiefdom of the King of France. In 1188, the trouble blew up that was to lead to the final downfall of his father Henry. Raymond of Toulouse seized some Aquidanian merchants that were crossing Toulouse and castrated, blinded and killed them. Richard raided into Raymond's territory, which prompted Philip of France to grumpily insist that his vassals stop beating each other up and resolve matters amicably. Unfortunately, the grumpy vassals had no intention of doing so. And in fact, Richard launched a massive raid that, like his previous wars, was spectacularly successful. In a short time, he'd taken 17 castles and approached the walls of Toulouse itself. As the raid passed through the county, the results would have been similar to this extract from the Chanson de Lorraine. The march begins. Out in front are the scouts and incendiaries. After them come the foragers whose job it is to collect the spoils and carry them in the great baggage train. Soon, all is tumult. The peasants, having just come out of the fields, turn back, uttering loud cries. The shepherds gather their flocks and drive them towards the neighbouring woods in the hope of saving them. The incendiaries set the villages on fire, and the foragers visit and sack them. The terrified inhabitants are either burned or led away with their hands tied to be held for ransom. Everywhere the bells ring the alarm. A surge of fear sweeps over the countryside. Wherever you look, you can see helmets glinting in the sun. Pennons waving in the breeze, the whole plain covered with horsemen. Money, cattle, mules and sheep are seized. The smoke billows and spreads, flames crackle. Peasants and shepherds scatter in all directions. This dispute led to Philip's invasion of Bury, despite Henry arguing that he had nothing to do whatsoever with Richard's attack on Toulouse, and he thought his son was wrong to do it, which itself helped turn Richard against his father. By 1189, as we know, it was all over. By the time Richard became king at the age of 32, we know something of his character. Everyone agrees that this is a man who loves war. Unlike his brothers Henry and Geoffrey, he doesn't appear to have gone in much for tournaments. There is only one or two mentions of Richard taking part. He was instead a man who liked the real thing. Unusually also, he's not much noted for his hunting, which has been a theme of monarchs since, ooh, about last March. There is overwhelming evidence, though, that he loved music, and in fact... It had been unusual if he hadn't, because the tradition of troubadours was very strong in the southwest of France. We don't have any details of Richard's education, but it's pretty clear generally that a prince would have been expected to be taught musical instruments. And in addition, there are two songs attributed to Richard himself. One of them, the text of which I have to admit I can't find, is apparently a Cervantes. The word describes the lyrical poems of the medieval troubadours and derives from the word servant. 
the Cervantes talk about the local events from a biased and partisan viewpoint. The other one is Richard's poem about being stuck in prison while he's waiting for the ransom to be paid, and I think I'd describe it as being ever so slightly whiny, but you see what you think. Critics far better than I have discerned a flicker of sardonic amusement and pride. I'm just getting wine here, but maybe your radar is more sensitive. You can also see people play it on YouTube, so I've put the text and the link on thehistoryofengland.com to a few YouTube videos, including the Horrible Histories one about Bertrand de Morn, one of the most famous of all the troubadours. I may be wrong, but I think Richard I and Henry VIII are the only monarchs to have written songs that we know about. I'm happy to be corrected on that. Folk of Neuilly, a famous preacher of the day, noted a few negative points about Richard and accused Richard directly of having three wicked daughters, pride, avarice and sensuality. Richard replied rather smoothly by the sound of things, I give my pride to the Templars, my avarice to the Cistercians and my sensuality to the Benedictines. Which is a rather neat way of saying that he wasn't alone and that the church was hardly in a position to hand out the criticism. But Falk had a point. There's certainly no doubt about his pride, which without doubt slipped over into arrogance. And this is never a nice thing, but you have to admit he had a few things to feel cocky about. His mother really shouldn't have called him Great One, though. That can't have helped. There's also no doubt that he's more than a bit selfish and self-centred. Look at the way he treats his father and his brothers. Though truth to say, as far as John is concerned, he's going to be more than indulgent. Avarice is a bit hard. Yes, he stripped England bare to pay for his wars. But, to pay for a crusade, seen as the crowning responsibility of Christian monarchs of the time, and to defend his country against foreign invasion, not to sit around sunning himself, so avarice is, again, a little bit harsh. Sensuality is something of a poser. There are complaints from the Aquitaine that they had to lock up their daughters, but actually they're not that convincing. He fails to have any children by his wife, though he does admit to one bastard. There is some debate as to whether or not he was therefore homosexual. He certainly spent the night in bed with Philip of France, so there's a thing. But really, the evidence for his homosexuality is wafer thin. Richard was, by all accounts, a perfectly pious man in the medieval idiom. But the real code he lived by was that of chivalry, a code that combined the ideal of honour, personal integrity, generosity and the entitlement to social respect. This runs through everything he does and worries about his urge to be in the centre of battles and events, his celebrated relationship with Saladin, his willingness to risk everything to live up to his reputation for success, an impulse that will lead to his premature death. We've seen constantly in this podcast how important it was for a lord to be generous and reward his followers, and Richard spends lavishly to meet these expectations. And let's end on the undeniably positive points. Here's a contemporary called Gerald de Barry on Richard. Above all, he possesses three fine qualities. First, exceptional courage and energy. Second, great generosity and courtliness. And thirdly, verminous of purpose, both in thought and word. Not bad. And qualities that Richard shows consistently. A few notices before we go. First of all, many thanks, George, for your kind donation, and even more for your comments. And Mike, I'm very happy to be in the cab with you on your travels. Secondly, I have to apologise for the last few additions to the Facebook site, which seem to have strayed a bit away from history, but those videos really made me howl. And finally, thanks for your comments, emails, Facebook stuff, and please keep them coming. 
I hope I'll be back in a week. But we have come to the big switch of the podcast feed. I can delay it no longer, so who knows? Maybe this is not just au revoir, but actually goodbye for good. But have a really good week, everybody, or even life, and hopefully see you all soon. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 